Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Ethan Hawke, an Oscar-nominated actor who's a familiar face from films including Dead Poet Society, Before Sunrise, Training Day, and Boyhood. Hawke has long made a point of returning regularly to the stage. On Broadway, he starred in shows like Henry IV and Macbeth, and earned a Tony nomination for his work in Tom Stoppard's three-part epic, The Coast of Utopia. While off-Broadway, he's worked as both an actor and a director. He's also directed films, including the recent Blaze, and written novels. Now, as his performance in Paul Schrader's film First Reformed picks up Oscar buzz, he's appearing on Broadway opposite Paul Dano in True West, the seminal Sam Shepard play that lends a mythic dimension to sibling rivalry. In many ways, it feels like the grifter Lee is a character Hawk was born to play, and that's partly because Hawk has a long history, both with Shepard's work and with Shepard himself. Hey, Ethan. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've had a long relationship with Sam Shepard and his work. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how that started. Well, I guess it started... Um, I I saw the right stuff. Hmm. And, you know, like everybody else, was absolutely hypnotized by this kind of Gary Cooper-like magnetism coming from the guy playing Chuck Yeager. And shortly thereafter, they were showing True West on PBS. And I, I'd had... This may be more information than you wanted, but my my mother's sister, my aunt, who was barely older than me, was living with us at the time going to college, and so she was really hip and... You know, listening to the talking heads. And Where was this? Where were we're you? We're in um, West Windsor, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. And so I saw the right stuff with her, and we loved it. And later she said, hey, you know, the guy who played Chuck Yeager is a great playwright. And I was like, really? That's interesting. And so I stayed up late, and we watched it on PBS that night. And it really felt like the call of the wild to me. And this I, was the which production of it? This was this when it was off Steppen Broadway Wolf, or no, the Steppenwolf Steppen production. production okay. That was at the they filmed the Cherry Lane production, ah. and um, you can find it on YouTube or whatever. That, yeah. But it's the kind of thing that doesn't really exist anymore. Just a filming of a play. And this is Malkovich and Sinise. This uh-huh. is okay. Yeah. Gary Sinise directed it. Yep. It was the first time I'd ever seen John Malkovich. Right. Right. Which is kind of a breathtaking experience. Yeah. Um, I, I liken it to seeing what I imagine it would be like to see Brando in Streetcar when it was a new play, where you're like, you don't know if it's the play or the actor, but something has changed, you know? Uh, And I knew when I went to sleep that night that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know whether I wanted to write the play or act in it or direct it or do the lights or whatever, but whatever they were doing was what I wanted to do. And so that started a relationship to me figuring out who Sam Shepard was. I remember, you know, and then I, my first year, my only year at college, uh, they were studying Buried Child. Where was that? Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon, yeah. And and so that was my first entry point to a literature class there was studying Buried Child. Mm -hmm. And then I started when I dropped out of college I started reading all the plays on my own and kind of falling in love with them and and also trying to 
I was trying to smell New York theater that I'd heard about. You know, the kind of 60s punk rock, uh, Joe Chaikin, Patti Smith theater. I wanted to find out where that lived and was reading those early plays, Action and Chicago and Cowboy Mouth. and So I was really into all that. And then through a weird set of circumstances, I got to act with Gary Sinise in a movie. And I told him what a hero he was to me. Which I, one was that? Which movie? It was called The Midnight Clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of one of the very few anti-war World War II movies. Yeah. Uh, a movie I'm really proud of. Uh, but anyway, Gary and I got along pretty well. And he told me that he, for the 20th anniversary of Steppenwolf, he was directing Buried Child. And did I want to be in it? And I did. And I came to Chicago. And Sam was there. And that's where I first met Shepard. And we worked on that play. And to get to work on Shepard's material with Sinise, who is just a ferocious theater director. You know, I had also seen Gary in, uh, oh, um, The Grapes of Wrath on Broadway, which was, you know, between True West and Grapes of Wrath, those are the two greatest theater experiences of my life. I mean, and, and they were so distinctly American. Mm-hmm. What I loved about him, a lot of, you know, you go see other productions, or but it's, you know, you sing Shakespeare, you sing whatever you're seeing that might be brilliant. But when you see something that speaks to directly the inside of you, uh, whatever you is, it seems so unnameable, but they find voice for it. And Steinbeck, Shepard, Steppenwolf, they all went so well together. So for me to get to be in Chicago... And for their 20th anniversary, where they all came together to see it, and Sam was a part of it because he was revising Barry Child. Mm. And it was, I remember the story I like to tell about it is uh, the first read-through, the way I met Sam Shepard, I first read-through, as soon as it was over, I was at the urinal, I looked over and there and he was. <laughs> and, and he said, good job. And I, I, I came home, I went to my little apartment, I called Richard Linkletter, who was... Yeah. I'd just done Before Sunrise with. Okay, yeah. And I, I called him up and I told him that story. And he said, man, you're pissing in the tall grass with the big dogs. <laughs> and um, uh, But that started a relationship with Sam. Uh, we had a big success with that play in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then he played my father in Hamlet, right. uh, a film I did. He played my father in a film called Snow Falling on Cedars. We had some fun in Portland, Oregon. I acted mm-hmm. in Killer's Head at the public I was supposed to do a couple little workshops and then I finally got to do the New York premiere of the late Henry Moss right. which was absolutely obscure, obscured by September 11th right. but it was a beautiful experience for us because I got to work with the other great Shepherd interpreter or one of the other great ones with Joe Chaikin right. so I have this really unique experience of getting to work with Sinise at Steppenwolf get to work with Joe Chaikin um you know, on Tenth Avenue, right? It, it, yeah, that was at the signature, if I yeah, remember right. Yeah, Way exactly. out there at the old old signature, yeah. the old signature, and so I got to have the downtown experience that I was looking for. I mean, shaking, we had a drummer on stage, and it it was really those were powerful psychic experiences for me. Um, and then I got to direct Shepherd myself, right? And where I did it live, the mind, and tried to combine what I'd learned from Joe Chaikin and from Sinise. Uh, a kind of Steppenwolf animalistic attack and 
than the kind of Joe Chaikin beat poet part of Sam, mm. that they're both alive. You know, some people love to focus on the kind of macho aspect that Sam gave off as an actor. You know, this kind of machismo and tough guy kind of thing that was kind of beautiful and magnetic. But it can also be a pose. It's the, it, it's not, that's different than Sam Shepard, the playwright. Um, I think he's a really great writer and a really major poet. So... Uh, those, that's y- kind of in a way. It's kind of surprising that you've never done True West before. Actually, that uh, well, you, the trouble was Phil did True West. Yeah, we're talking about and, the Philip Seymour Hoffman Johnson yeah. Riley production from two thousand, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, two thousand one, maybe two thousand, maybe two thousand itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it was. Yeah, it was before my son was born. So okay. yeah, yeah. Anyway, and this is the production where the the two actors famously switched roles. They switched the roles, John C. And, and they were both brilliant. And I kind of felt that that was my generation's production and that, you know, it was going to be for the next generation to do it. And I really just decided I didn't want to do True West. It just, it was, it, it was, it had been done too well. And it's done often in class. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very famous, in the world of actors, it's a famous play. Yeah, anyone who's ever taken an acting class ever has it, seen a scene from True West, yes, right? exactly. And so I kind of didn't want to touch it. And then a, a couple days before he passed, I got the offer that Sam wanted to do True West on Broadway before he died, you know, that it had been long enough and that he was, as much as he admired Phil and John C.'s production, that that production was largely about the two of them and that the event of the play is that Austin and Lee kind of switch. That's the event of the play. And if you come in knowing that they switch you've robbed the play of its central event and made it simply about watching actors and not and it's an interesting it's like he loved that production but he was just saying he doesn't sense that production people had this idea that that was the way to do it and it wasn't his preferred way and he was saying to James McDonald who is our director who Sam had worked. James directed Sam in Carol Churchill's A Number. Yes, A Number at New York Theatre Workshop. Yeah. unbelievable production. It's just brilliant. I'd seen Sam in that. And uh, and so Sam really liked the way that James worked. And what, he, what Sam reminded James of is that when he originally wrote it, he wanted, you know, there's supposed to be a decade between them. Right. That one is, Sam was around 40 when he wrote it, and one was who he was worried he was becoming, and one is an idealized version of who he was. And realizing that they're both connected is kind of the nature, the exploration of identity that the play is. And so he's, you know, so the offer came to me. And it's just, and when I thought about it now at this point in my life, I thought I did have something to offer it that would be different than that production. And then the idea of getting to do it with Paul, it became kind of thrilling because we could really use the age difference. Right. And Paul is someone you've known for years, but this is the first time you've ever really acted opposite him in a significant way. Is that First time I've acted with him in any way. Yeah. You you actually directed him off Broadway, right? I directed him in Things We Want, which is a new play by Jonathan Mark Sherman. And we had a great experience together. That was a dozen years ago. Uh Uh-huh. It was right when he and Zoe met. Right. They met on that in that, that cast, on that, right? Yeah, yeah she exactly. was in that cast, yeah. With Peter Dinklage and Josh Hamilton. Yeah. And that was a great experience for us. And was that the first time you'd met Paul, or did you know him before? I, I met him in the audition room. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, 
So, yeah. Why, why was he the natural choice for uh, your Lee? He's Austin. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a danger with Shepard material to um, posture and pose and macho it up because uh, the language is so muscular and, and has a toughness to it. But to rob it of its wit and its intelligence its uh, and its sensitivity is it, you have to marry them. They have to both be there. And then you have a Shepard production, you know, and a lot of the problems with a lot of those scene work acting classes is it's a bunch of boys trying to pretend they're Sam Shepard or something. And, uh, <laughs> and Paul has that wit. He has that intelligence. You believe that he's a writer. You believe that he is full of depth and complexity, and he's not one thing. And he, so, I, to me, he fits the kind of Shepardian lineage that uh, that goes best with the productions of Sam's plays. And now that you're, this is a play you obviously know really well. But now that you've rehearsed it, and now you're heading towards opening with it. What have you learned? What what surprised you about? what this play is and what it's about and maybe your character. You know, I've never started work on a play with a play I knew so well in my life. It's a strange feeling because normally, you know, even if you're doing the Scottish play, you know, you're doing Macbeth. Which you have. Which I have. You know, you think you know that play and then you dive into that language and you didn't know that play at all and you see why those Brits can work on, do those plays seven, eight, nine, ten times. They're un- you know, their guided meditations, their incantations, their, they're like, I don't know, a black mirror or something, you know, it's just, it's, um, but with this play, I knew it intimately before I even considered doing it. I mean, that never happened to me in my life. And what I learned is that it's, I thought it was a really fun evening and a great opportunity for actors. What I didn't know is that it's a perfect diamond. It's Sam. It's a world-class poet at the height of his powers, doing something that only a few people a generation can do. In this period, you know, I think this period between uh, Buried Child and Lie of the Mind, you have... You know, there's brilliant work before and brilliant work after, but you feel you feel a talent blooming mm-hmm. in that kind of decade of uh, y- you know that that period, and then and then it, there's brilliance after it, but it's it's different, it's older, it's in a way. I mean, I think Shepard would say it's less ambitious. You know, later in his life, he got less interested in writing the great American play, more interested in poems and short stories and doing his own thing as he saw fit his whole life. But anyway, this play, True West, is a diamond. It's pure Sam Shepard. And it's it, it really works. It's unbelievable how strong it is just as a piece of writing. Uh, so it's been a thrill to work on it. What Did you find it... Did you find that familiarity made it more of a challenge or made it easier for you or some sort of balance of the two? in terms of working on the play and finding a way into it, you know? I don't know. I had to... um, This might sound crazy to say, but I really... 
the ghost of Phil is strong in my psyche, Phil Seymour Hoffman. And so rather than ignore him, I invited him mm. to teach me. And, and I invited John Malkovich into my... I didn't pretend I didn't see that production. I can't unsee... how could you, yeah. I can't unsee what I learned from Gary Sinise. I actually, I directed, and not only... I directed Laurie Metcalf on, in Sam Shepard. Yeah, in Lie of the Mind, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Laurie is, in many ways, the real great American actor. Um, she's just a fierce artist and true, and she has... She's American, and she's... Uh, intelligent and funny sensitive and animalistic and she doesn't she's spontaneous and intellectual she's a miracle on stage and an inspiration to me and so I also invite her psyche in and the way that she would attack a rehearsal room the way that she would attack Shepard and I've seen her and Sam Shepard argue (laughs) and that's really exciting thing to have in your psychology to go like all right. I also you know, I don't know. I once, uh, I really wanted to direct True West, and I wanted to direct it with women, and so I did a reading, a little workshop with Martha Plimpton and Marin Ireland. Wow! And you know, that was when I realized it was a work of staggering genius because you know it's kind of like a a great song, you know, a Dylan song. You don't realize what a great song it is to hear Johnny Cash sing it or Neil Young or Patti Smith or, you know, when you hear a song be covered and you realize that it really is a poem that is ripe for adaptation and it can lend itself to different time periods and different voices. And believe it or not, as much as people, it, it, it took away Phil and John C.'s work. It took away Malkovich and Sinise. I saw the play new when I heard Martha and Marin. I heard how funny it was. And I heard the sensitivity. And I heard that the war between the masculine and feminine doesn't just exist in men. It exists everywhere. And, uh, and it's responsible for so much self-loathing. Uh, and it's the beauty of the play. And I heard it. And I wanted to direct them in it. Do you still want to do that? Yeah, I did. You know, Sam wasn't interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sam, um, Sam is is you know the the kind way of saying it is he's old school. Sure. You know, and he did not understand why in the world I would. Uh, I believe his expression was "You're a weird dude." <laughs> uh, and um, but I do think it would be a great production, and I do think the world is ready for it. And uh, someday maybe I'll get to do it. Yeah, we'll have to see how his state feels about it. But if they honor his wishes, it would be no. Right, right. Um, you come back to theater all the time. Basically, yeah. you've got a very busy film career, and yet you're always you've made a uh, real point of coming back and uh, doing stage work and really big, ambitious stage work. Like you've taken on Henry Four and uh, Macbeth and all that stuff. And well, yeah, I'm um, proud of myself. Why is that? Well. Because I consider myself a student, you know, that what's a, I don't know who said it, I'm sure many people have said it, but one lifetime is not enough, you know, it's just not enough. Uh, And I've tried to do some of the hardest, you know, I learned from Jack O'Brien that one of the things 
who's a great theater director. Yeah, he directed Coast to, of Utopia. Yeah, he directed me in Coast of Utopia and oh, and uh, Henry the yeah. Fourth and the yeah. Scottish play. Yeah. Oh, that's and, right, of course. Yeah. And about the importance of pitching yourself against the most difficult material, where mankind and has thrown itself before, and that in tackling the untackable, uh, whatever that expression is, you find yourself, and that in doing. Hamlet or, you know, Ivanov, Chekhov's first play. It's a very difficult play to do. Yeah. I've done Breck's first play, Ball, which is oh, damn, wow. damn near impossible. Um, in, in doing these writers' first early plays, you really get to know the writer. You see them form. It's like doing some of Action or some of Sam's early work. You start... It, it, it's really fun to work on his more mature work when you know exactly what he's been scratching for, you know? Because you're not... When you do these plays, you're not just doing the play, you're conjuring the muse, the same muse that lit the lit the first fire of this play, you know? It's an amazing feeling when you do Shakespeare, for example. And when when you first read a passage, and you don't even get it, you don't even understand what it means, and you read it, and you read it, work on it. And two months later, you're getting a laugh in front of a thousand people on those lines. It's an amazing feeling. And then when you realize that that laugh is 400 and something years old, hmm. that this laugh has been there in theaters throughout time, and you, you feel yourself kind of connected to this you know, cloud of witnesses or something, this, yeah. this great unknowing void of what is our consciousness. Hmm. And that this... This joke, this body, whether it's a might be a fart joke, right. or it might be a joke about how moms overtake care of their sons, or how young boys like to play with themselves. It is dopey as it is. This joke has been making people laugh for hundreds of years. Therefore, your experience as you laugh in the audience, our lives are not nearly so unique as we think. And in that is this great freedom. It's kind of like looking at the stars or the ocean. You think that somehow the greatness of the universe is going to make you feel small, but instead it like takes the weight off your shoulders and it makes you feel free. I, I've never understood why looking at the stars doesn't make me depressed because how in the world could any of our lives matter right. in the great cosmos? And yet they do. And you feel it and you feel the beauty of each one of those stars. And And I know that's kind of a corny thing to say, but... I feel that way when you're acting, and particularly with the theater. You know, like mm-hmm. somebody came up to me after True West the other night, asked me to sign their program, and you know they had been at. You know, we came to previews of Macbeth, and God, we loved it when the how did the roses fall, and they're oh, yeah. they're still seeing it. You, you know, and the great thing about plays, unlike people think movies are immortal, and yet they. They age terribly. I mean, you know, go watch a Tyrone Power movie right now, and it's beautiful and wonderful, and I love it. But my kids don't want to watch it. It's clearly dated in its era, the style of writing, the style of acting, the style of photography. Even if you go watch Silkwood, a movie I love, right. a pretty recent movie, the quality of the filmmaking is already aging. Yeah. And you see it, whereas if you see, if you saw Meryl Streep in Cherry Orchard 30 years ago, it hasn't aged at all. You know, it's still completely alive in your imagination. And that's the living form of the theater and why I do it. And why, for me, I've never been a commercial theater actor. 
you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever worked outside the non-for-profit theater world. Um, I, I, so I always look at it as an education. Yeah. Huh. And we should say also that, well, first of all, before I ask you about the, some of the films that you're working on, what, um, what do you feel like your theater work uh, gives you to bring with you into the work you do on uh, screen? Nobody wants to say it. It's just a hell of a lot more demanding. I mean, once you've done, if if you if you've done Ivanov and Rex Ball and eight times a week, it, 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 you know, when I remember when I just finished the Scottish play, I went and did this little movie with Andrew Nichol called Good Kill about drone pilots. Mm-hmm. And you know, this drone pilot was just haunted and really going through a meditation on what it's like to kill people from a video game machine and go home to your kid's soccer practice. And it was a very modern problem. But there's something about doing those great plays. It it cracks you open. Spending time with great minds, that's what doing the play is. Like, Mm -hmm. if you do a stopper play for nine months, I spent every day with that man's imagination. You know, Shepard would talk about doing that Carol Churchill play was the most inspiring being inside her yeah. imagination. You know, uh, I remember working with Sam on um, when he was playing Hamlet Sr. And right. he just couldn't, when you actually are forced to memorize Hamlet Sr.'s speech, the speech that ends with remember me, you know. It's like these words, the rhythm, the it, the, the powerful use of consonants. And, and hmm. to watch him be turned on by that and realize, and then see it in his plays, you're like, oh... You know, between you, the coyotes, and the crickets, a thought don't have a chance. Right. Yeah. It's like, you're like, oh, I know this guy. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, we, should all, we should mention that uh, one of the plays you worked on recently, First Reformed, is doing really well. Uh, yeah, movies. It's got, That's yeah, a movie, not a play. Yeah, film, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did I say play? Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, it's been nominated for an Indie Spirit Award, and Gotham Awards did really well, and congratulations on all that. What... Um, Tell us a little bit about that movie for um, people who haven't had a chance to see it. Well, it was written and directed by Paul Schrader, you know, writer of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and uh, director of many great films, Affliction, Light Sleeper, Cat People, American Gigolo. Uh, He is kind of one of the great American independents of his generation. And this is clearly some kind of sibling to Taxi Driver. First reforms, I play a priest who is having a crisis. He's counseling a young man who's uh, near suicide for fear of what's happening to the planet, why nobody's doing anything about climate change. And um, this priest is deeply moved by this young man and uh, enters his own spiritual crisis. And it's one of the most beautifully written parts I've ever been given. And... uh, you know, that's the thing about being an actor is you're only as good as your opportunities. Right. You really... And our job as performers is to be ready for great opportunities. How we carry our daily life is what determines whether we're ready when... Right, right. You know, when we may or may not be granted our, our chance, you know. And so I've been happy that, to answer your other question, the theater work I've done prepares me to know how to... Because one of the problems with independent film is you never have enough time to rehearse, and you ever have, so your life has to be a rehearsal. You know, you have to be in good shape. 
You know, if there's right. not enough time to practice, you have to always be in shape. Right. And as your life of an actor, it's not just a body thing, it's a mind thing. And uh, it's, for lack of a better word, a, a spiritual place right. that if you can connect to that, then you start to be able to connect to a lot of different roles because our experiences aren't so unique and that because all of us, you know, with the benefit of good writing can have insight into lots of different lives. And it's really exciting. So, yeah, yeah. that movie has been, uh, has found a place and I hope will continue to find yeah. a place. This is obviously not your first rodeo when it comes to the award stuff. How do you approach all that stuff with award season and Hollywood? I try to be very zen about it. Yeah. Um, there's a great Patti Smith expression, which she says, anytime anybody wants to give me an award, I happily, joyfully accept. <laughs> um, and uh, that's how I feel. You want the work to deserve it. That's why you do it. You know, so you can't have some kind of false modesty and be like, oh, I can't believe. No, I, I worked hard. I care a lot about this. If, if the work deserves it, that's reasons to live for me, you know. But you can't place too high of a value on it or you invariably, if you have the life of the art, arts, you will suffer tremendously because sometimes you get a turn on the carousel and sometimes you don't. And how your work intersects with what the public wants is not up to you. You know, in both those things, your work has to be right and the public's interest and the critical interest, they all have to collect. Uh, I remember seeing this great interview with Paul Newman at the end of his life and they asked him about, did you know that this, the movie he was doing was Nobody's Fool? And Robert Benton film, just wonderful film. Like, did you know it was going to be great? And he said, you know, I think they're all going to be great. And sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But I try. And that's kind of how I feel. You always are trying to do your best, and sometimes what you're doing connects with what the world wants to see. And I mean, we were at the New York Film Critics the other day, and yeah. to watch Martin Scorsese give Paul Schrader his best screenplay award, yeah, wow. and wax poetic about Paul's work, and to talk so eloquently about our film together. Um, I don't think I'd had a more meaningful accolade in my life than that. Yeah. To be in that room with those minds and have kind of the Prince of the City and to be a part of their legacy yeah. that legacy that called me to this profession so I'd be you know I'd be ashamed not to be proud of that yeah. you know what I mean I mean how could you not be and um, and at the same time you have to kind of the thing Phil used to say is you have to treat it like it's life and death and you have to remember you're a clown <laughs> you, you know <laughs> And if you can do both of those, then you won't be shocked when they start to make fun of you again. And uh, you won't take it for granted when they get it. But, yeah. but if you keep trying to penetrate, then yeah. maybe you will. What's next for you? You're in True West for the next several weeks, and then what yeah, comes just later? Well, I finished the Coriata film. Yes. Yeah. Japanese so, filmmaker who's really beautiful. Yeah, what's that called? The The Truth is that the name of that? It's film? It's called The Truth, La Verte. Okay. It's a a movie he wrote for Catherine Deneuve. Believe it or not, right. it's incredible. I got to work with uh, Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve. Is it in French? Is it in English? Is well, I speak English. <laughs> um, they speak French. Uh, our director was Japanese, so yeah. maybe the film will make no first, sense at all. Is this his yeah. first non-Japanese foreign, foreign for him language? Yep, film? Yep, yeah. Yep. So who knows? Maybe it'll be a disaster, you know. <laughs> but uh, his hope, film won the um, Palme d'Or at this last 
Cannes Film Festival. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Shoplifters. Shop so that, that was fun, and I'm hoping to work with Michael Amoreda again, who directed me in Hamlet. Right. And it looks like that's coming together. And uh, in another Shakespeare film? No, we have a different project we're working okay. on. Yep. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't. I have a few things I really want to do. But well, yeah, what do you want to do on stage next? Well, right now I would love it if somebody would offer me the. What I really want to do is do a season of Shepherd. I would love for New York to be able to see how these plays relate to each other the way they often do in England. Like, I would love to take Paul Dano and go right into a production of the late Henry Moss. Wow. You know, and then to let Paul play Tilden in Buried Child and, and to let, you know, the guy, right. you, you know, to do a, the way that Buried Child and Curse of the Starving Class relate to A Fool for Love and True West and the late Henry Moss and Tooth of Crime and to start for people to start to see the way that these plays speak to each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way they have a Shakespeare festival. I would love to do a Shepherd festival with one group of actors. I was going to say with a repertory cast. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and you know, like, wouldn't it be cool if you had like three stages and because th- you could do the set you could do Curse of the Starving Class on the same set that you built for Barry Child, and you could do late Hen- <laughs> yeah. you could do late Henry Moss on the same set that you do for True West. Mm-hmm. You just switch the mom and the dad. Right. Be incredible! Wow. And uh, so I'm having these visions of a Shepherd repertory. That's what I want to do next. Great. But I, I don't know if it'll happen. Well, we can't wait to see it. When it mm-hmm. If and when it happens, <laughs> someday. Yeah. someday. Thanks for being here, Ethan. Yeah, Great to talk to you. It. Thank you. That was Ethan Hawke, now starring on Broadway in the Roundabout Theatre Company's revival of True West. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. On the next episode of Stagecraft, I talk to Jeremy Pope, the rising young actor who's making his Broadway debut this season in not one, but two shows. First, Choir Boy, the play by Moonlight Oscar winner Terrell Alvin McCraney, and then Ain't Too Proud, the new musical about The Temptations. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.